Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Lord, we join the testimony of the saints of old every day, every Lord's day since the first century, since that morning dawned with your resurrection. We have gathered together as your saints to celebrate the victory over sin, death, and the grave by our champion, our Messiah, our Lord, our King of Kings, our great God and Savior who defeated the wages of sin by his atoning death on Calvary, Jesus Christ. It is Jesus, our Lord, that we proclaim in these worship songs today. It is Jesus, our Lord, who we acknowledge is the Word of God, even as his instructions are recorded for us by his anointed servants through the pages of Scripture, giving to us the immutable and the powerful and errant truth the never-failing, never-withering message and proclamation for all time of the will of the Heavenly Father. We thank you that our Lord Jesus submitted to that very will in taking on the burden of our sin, taking on flesh in the incarnation, born of a woman, born in our experience, taking on the judgment that is due the punishment ourselves, the punishment that our sin deserved upon Calvary, and then rising again on the third day defeating the greatest enemy of all in this one act, in this one fell swoop, redeeming for himself a people and taking on the punishment of their sin by his stripes and bleeding body. And yet he did not stay in the grave, and this day we celebrate his resurrection. Now as we turn to the Holy Word of God today and set our attention and affections upon it, I pray that you would do two things according to Psalm 119, that you would give us a deep desire to love and appreciate the truth therein contained. And secondly, that you would give us understanding to plumb more of its depths as your Spirit grants ability. May this be accomplished through the proclamation of your word as the Spirit uses the proclamation of the same in spite of the frailty of the servant who delivers and the frailty of the ears upon which it lands. Would you do a miracle of hearing and a miracle of proclamation to declare, Lord, that which is forever true from the pages of your holy word, that it may glorify yourself, call the lost to repentance, and equip your church to take ground for the kingdom of God. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. This morning, I invite you to turn in your scriptures to Psalm 119 as we consider the fourth section. That would be, I'm going to get this pronunciation wrong because the reader of my Bible pronounced it Daleth, but one of the Hebrew scholars here in our midst, Jaden, tells me it's pronounced Dalet. So that would be the fourth of the Hebrew alphabet letter, Dalet, and that would be the title of our morning section and text of consideration today from Psalm 119, verses 25 through 32. A title of my sermon today is Zalet, and then a subtitle, The Trial of Sorrow. The Trial of Sorrow. The aim of this morning's message is to equip the church for the sorrows of life. Let me just remind you briefly, by way of overview, a working theme that we have for this, the greatest of songs, if you will, at least by length, and the most intricate of all the acrostic psalms as well in the Bible, Psalm 119. What's an acrostic psalm? Just a reminder for you. Each stanza in an acrostic psalm begins with a sequential letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Psalm 119 is unique in that there are 22 stanzas, or 22 sections, and each verse, of which there are eight in each, begins with the same Hebrew letter. The first eight verses all begin with Aleph in the ancient text. 
The second eight verses, the next eight verses, all begin with bet in the ancient text. The third section, these three we've covered so far, begin with gimel. And our section today, all eight verses, begin in the Hebrew with dalet. So it's an interesting way of ordering ideas, which speaks to beauty, symmetry, power, order, design, engineering. This is, after all, the Word of God. So a construction like this, as intricate as it is, which can't be fully appreciated without some knowledge of the Hebrew language, nevertheless testifies to the glories of our God. With that brief introduction, out of reverence for God's scripture, would you stand with me this morning and listen as his immutable truth is proclaimed in your hearing today. This is Psalm 119, verses 25 through 32. Here is the word of God, Dalet. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me, and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. This is the word of God. You may be seated. <clears throat> uh, per request of a couple young people, we will do the stop game, the infamous stop game in a moment. And kids, let me remind you of the rules. When you hear a particular word, you tell me to stop. And in the course of our passage, we'll come up with a number. And in a minute, I'll tell you what you'll listen for. Let me give a couple introductory sentences. The sufficiency of God's word is featured in section four of the great acrostic psalm in light of the heavy burden of sorrow that often attends our way in a fallen world. I have proposed that 21 of the 22 sections of Psalm 119 each give us a presenting challenge. The presenting challenge in the second section bet was the trials of youth. And what we learn from Psalm 119 verses 9 through 16 or 17 is that the word of God, 16, excuse me, the word of God is sufficient. That means it is up to the task. It is a sharp tool that is accurate and effective for the trials of youth. Now the second section or after that, the second presenting problem in the third section is Gimel. And we propose there that the presenting challenge is that of sojourning or traveling. When one is unfamiliar, a stranger in a strange land, and is facing many challenges accordingly, nevertheless, he finds that the word of God, his commandments, his rules, and so forth, are indeed sufficient. And along this theme, now we come to the fourth section and the third presenting problem. And let me submit this morning, it is the challenge of sorrows, sadness, difficulty. You could say perhaps depression, discouragement, despair. The trials that attend a fallen world and the weight of what rests upon our shoulders, given this side of glory, is a presenting problem, which I will make the case in this sermon today, the Word of God is sufficient to leave. The Word of God is sufficient, therefore, for the trial of sorrows. It occurs to me today, it is significant to note, that while the authors of Scripture were blessed with a gift that none of us today can boast, namely the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to record the very word of God. None of us will ever do that. That is to say, the author of Psalm 119 was uniquely gifted. 
He understood God's word in a spirit-inspired way such that when he wrote it down, it was the inspired Holy Scripture. Nevertheless, even though we acknowledge this is true, we see very candidly and very personally that the author of this song was dependent on that very same word and the word of the rest of the authors of Scripture before him for his own spiritual well-being. And this brings up a question, an argument, if you will, from lesser to greater. If the authors of Scripture were no less dependent on that same word to provide necessary means to navigate their own weaknesses of the soul, how much more do we need the Word of God? If the authors of Scripture were dependent on God's Scriptures for their spiritual life, how much more ought we pay heed to the necessary source of strength and resolve for our own trials of the soul, whether they be the trials of youth, the trials of traveling or sojourning, or the trials of sorrow. So enamored is the author with the covenant revelation of God, which is an overarching term for God's word, that he gives it at least seven terms, and these have, re, have been recurring in the text already. So enamored is the author with the revelation, the word of God, he deploys at least seven terms throughout the course of this epic song to emphasize the indispensable speech of God. Now, I have a study Bible, the ESV study Bible. I recommend, by the way, it's a great kind of one-size-fits-all study Bible. The ESV study Bible defines these terms as follows, and most of which appear in each stanza or in each section, including ours today. Before we get to that glossary list, if you will, let's play the stop game. So kids, here's what you're listening for. If you hear the Word of God, statutes, testimonies, if you hear one of those terms that refers to the speech, the Word, the revelation of God, you tell me to stop. Everybody ready? All right, listen closely, kids. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your Word. When, yeah, well, what is it? Word, there we go. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. There we go, statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts. And Yes, precepts, you're getting it. And I will meditate on your wondrous works. We'll go with works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Very good. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. Awesome, that's six. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. Awesome rules. I cling to your testimonies. Eight, O Lord, let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Awesome. That concludes our stop game for today, and we've counted eight, if not nine, references to the Word of God. Let's go through them very quickly. Each one of these, this glossary of terms, if you will, this is from that study Bible is referencing, adds a little bit of shade of understanding of the value of God's Word. Law, when you see law, think instruction. Testimonies, when you see testimonies, think what God solemnly testifies or proclaims to be His will. Precepts, what God has appointed to be done. Statutes, what the divine lawgiver has laid down. Commandments, what God has declared, commanded. Rules, what the divine judge rules to be right. And finally, word, what God has spoken. So those definitions are listed in your notes if you grabbed a copy in the back. 
or they'll be online later if you want to catch up and get a little overview. But I've taken what I call the highlighter challenge, and by my count, we're up to 34. From verse 1 all the way to verse 32, you know those words that we stopped at, kids? If you take the highlighter challenge and highlight each one of those, so far, by my count, we have 34 or so references to the Word of God. And once again, it's a way to illustrate how important the truth of God's Word is. We absolutely must have etched upon our soul by every means necessary, including repetition, meditation, memorization, and close review and study and testimony of ourselves, confession ourselves, that the Word of God is sufficient. Because we are faced with multiple trials, and we need this reminder, and therefore we need this reminder. Now, per our trial today in view, sorrow. There is no ambiguity in our author's prescription of the cure. Very clearly, it's what God has written. His laws, His testimonies, His precepts, His statutes, His commandments, His rules, His word. In summary, His covenant revelation is a prescription for the trial of sorrows. Nor in His diagnosis of the soul. So there's no ambiguity in what He says is our problem. This is instructive for us today, especially given the theme of the Dalit stanza, namely trial under sorrow. I bring this to your attention because these days, the psychological lexicon or the whole field of mental health can sometimes confuse these categories. In the modern age, mental health, or like I say, psychology oftentimes obscures the categories of the soul with clinical jargon, disguising the fact that the saints of old were not naive or immune to things like what we call depression, debilitating sorrow, anxiety, stress, trauma, PTSD, or any number of what we put under that category of so-called mental health conditions. For each of these that I have listed, however you want to describe, catalog, or define them, for each of these, ultimately speaking, the prescription remains universal again the sufficient Word of God. And now I want us to consider its healing power in the soul of the author, given his own testimony in our verses today, Psalm 119-25-32. Let us explore the healing power of God's Word for the trial of the soul, namely the trial of sorrow. Here's a heading for you. and We'll d- divide this text into three sections. Dalit is the heart cry of a soul Number one, on the brink of death. We're listening to the heart cry of a soul on the brink of death, or what he feels is the brink of death anyway. Number two, Dalit is the heart cry of a soul, admittedly weak and vulnerable. The brink of death, weak and vulnerable. And number three, this is where the resolve comes in, the hope. Dalit is the heart cry of a soul resolved in the way. He comes to a conclusion, he comes to a resolution, a vow, a confession, a determination and a certainty. And those last three verses, 30 through 32, carry forward that theme. Let us begin with the brink of death. Dalit is the heart cry of a soul on the verge of catastrophe, at least in the way that he feels. Verse 23, we read this, my soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. So you see here, there's a contrast. On the one side, clinging to the dust. On the other, life. Clinging to dust is a poetic way, therefore, of describing death or the feeling of imminent destruction or demise. 
What does it mean for a soul to cling to the dust? We'll explore that in just a moment. But suffice it to say, it would be, in context here, the opposite of life. So you can either have a soul that's clinging to the dust, poetically speaking, or you can have a life according to God's word. The causes of sorrow. Well, if you think of this descriptive language, the power of poetry, and especially biblically po- biblical poetry is such that in one phrase, you can encapsulate a lot of ideas. Let me propose four. Causes of sorrow and kind of the expounding the meaning of this poetic description, my soul clings to the dust. First of all, when we think of clinging to the dust, we can uh, reference, it can be considered a reference to shaky footing, I submit. Feeling that nothing is substantial to ground or guide you. You know, it's like clinging to, to dust. We have idioms like that that are similar in our language. It's like clinging to straws while drowning is one, I think, you know. It's something futile. It's grasping at straws, I guess that would be another way of putting it. And similarly, grasping at dust can give you this sense of nothing substantial to ground you or to guide you. Nothing sufficient or certain to comfort or console you. And certainly, if this is our experience and our soul is struggling, it can lead to debilitating sorrow, this feeling of despair and helplessness. Clinging, and, but there's a second thing. There's, there's this sense, uh, under this same heading, there's this sense that uh, I, I have nothing to cling to, but then there's this other sense that the things we cling to, in fact, have no substance. We can be deceived that we can invest hope in one thing or another, but soon we find with the tests of life and the trials dialed up over time, that what we thought would carry us through this trial and this challenge ends up being nothing but dust in our hand. These are the causes of sorrow that are referred to poetically in this song, Shaky Footing. Also, you could think of this soul clinging to dust picture as being starved for hope. The Bible speaks of uh, sustenance to maintain our life. This is true of our, the life of our soul. The Bible considers us the worldview of the human being as an integrated whole. That which God has designed is the parts are meant to be complementary and working together. Our whole physical being, our mental and spiritual well-being, if you will, all of this is meant to have a, what, you, what you would call a symbiotic relationship. And the Bible tells us that there are healthy things, according to God's design, that feed us and that are necessary for life. This becomes a metaphor spiritually later on. The bread that is supplied in the wilderness, the manna, is a picture of that which sustains spiritual life. Jesus identifies himself with this miracle of provision later by saying that I am the bread of life. At the communion table, which we celebrated last week, where we had the elements spread before you and those who are in relationship with Jesus Christ were welcomed to the Lord's table. What is pictured in that event, in that covenant meal, is that Jesus Christ is the spiritual life, or if you will, mental health sustaining livelihood of the believer. In the Lord's Supper, it's a picture of partaking on Christ, feeding on Him, recognizing that He, in His death and resurrection, in His imputed righteousness, in the ongoing work of His Spirit transforming us into His image, supplies for us that which sustains our life and grants unto us eternal life. The opposite, clinging to dust. Kids, have you ever taken just a handful of dust and put it in your mouth and chewed on it? Most of us stop doing that when we're about one and a half, maybe, perhaps two. 
Some kids are, you know, they're pretty determined to get some nutritional value out of straight up mud at the beach. And then for the first year of their life, they try it over and over again. But if we went out to eat and I ordered mud for any of you kids, I don't think you'd be smiling and thanking me. You'd be like, no, I'd much rather have a pizza, please. Why? Because dust and mud has no nutritional value. Imagine a mouthful of dust and you can almost feel your gag reflexes and the choking coming involuntarily. Clinging to dust is clinging to something that cannot sustain you. It's starving for hope. Shaky footing, starving for hope, but also a sense of spiritual death. This clinging to dust may well be an allusion to man's, if you will, primal created state. Do you remember the process of the creation of Adam? God makes him out of what, kids? What is this? Yes, dust. That's correct. So God makes this dust or gathers this dust as it will. Imagine a potter in clay and forms the material substance of man. Was his work of creation complete at that point? Yes or no? No. What did he need? What did Adam need to become alive? Does anyone know? He needed the breath of life. So there's two stages of the creation, if you will, of Adam. There was the material, but then there was the breath of God himself breathing into the dust, the imbibing or life-giving element that made him the image of God, living, breathing creature, human, soul, and whole being, if you will. And in, the, in this act of creation, Man is no longer just dust, but he is the stuff of a, a material that is animated by the very spirit of God in his creation in the first place. So if our author feels as though he is clinging to dust, it is a reference that he needs, if you will, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. There is the sense of loss of the imbibing and life-giving element of God's Holy Spirit sustaining him. Now, in the church, we often call the things that God gives us by way of feeding on Him and spiritual disciplines, the reading of the Word, the gathering of the saints, the Lord's table, the preaching, the proclamation right now that we're submitting to, the Word of God being uh, going forth in our ears and the preaching of the gospel. These are things, our personal devotion time, our prayer time, our fellowship with the saints that the Spirit uses to breathe life into us. And they are sufficient means to, uh, to grapple with the sorrows of life. And if you are struggling with the heavy burdens of managing the trials of this world, I would prescribe those to you. And so would the author of Psalm 119. Without them, we can find soon enough that all of these counterfeits end up being just dust. All of the so-called mindfulness or yoga or I'm going to go find myself or on a journey to, you know, get to know me or whatever. All these narcissistic, self-indulgent, you know, vain ambition kinds of new agey hogwash that are so popular in our day. What are they? They're a false attempt to gain life, spirit, reality, profound, new meaning, purpose, you know, destiny, worth. These, these are values. But without the life-giving spirit of the Word of God, which God gives the means whereby we can grow, those things that I said before, namely, and, and summarily speaking, the Word, the precepts, the statutes, the knowledge of, of the Lord, those words that we recognize even in our text today, without them, it's nothing but dust. It's nothing but clinging to dust. Finally, and this is with the help of my wife, we're studying a little bit of this together. I asked her, what do you think of when you think of this picture? And she referenced this idea of stooping low. I think she's on the right track as well. My soul clinging to the dust could be referenced 
to being bowed low under the burdens of life and being crushed under the weight of the same. The scriptures speak of a yoke that is heavy being exchanged for a burden that is light. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 is this glorious promise of Jesus himself. Take my yoke that is easy and my burden that is light. Because if you try to bear the weight of your own sorrows in the sinfulness of this fallen world, in your own sin for that matter, or in your own self-righteousness, try to procure your own salvation, you will be stooped low. You'll be crushed under that burden. You'll be facing the dust. You will be bowed down with the burdens of life. They will destroy you. So the, the, all this to say that this poetic language in one phrase descriptive, descriptively gives us the sense that the author has faced situations and has faced circumstances of the soul that cause him to bring this heart cry, O oh Lord, save me, I am on the brink of death. These causes of sorrow have moved me to realize that I need more than dust. My soul is clinging to nothing of substance. Give me life according to your word. When one is on the brink of death, one needs sources of life. Now, we know in the picture of a drowning man on the brink of death, what often happens is he panics, which, you know, emergency service workers tell us is the worst thing you could do. Thrashing about in desperation can only make your situation worse. But why are we so desperate when death is imminent? Because we need sources of life. One last chance to cling on to hope. What are the true sources of life that will move us from spiritual panic to spiritual groundedness and certainty. Well, they are listed in our text today as the word, the statutes, the precepts, the law, the rules, the testimonies, and the commandments of our Lord. These are the sources of life. Now, in these two verses, 25 and 26, it's as if the author almost channels the experience of Job, especially as you consider Job you know, chapters, you can study this on your own time, but if you go through chapters 31 to the end of the book, there's sort of a sequence of events, and they really dovetail, parallel 25 and 26 of our text very well. Listen again. My soul clings to the dust. You relate to the experience of Job. Give me life according to your word. The cry of one clinging to dust. Does God speak to Job? He certainly does. Verse 26, when I told of my ways... There's a confession and testimony, particularly in 31, where Job gives an account of his ways. You answered me. Does God answer Job? He sure does. And boy, is that an eye-opening experience. It says, you answer me, teach me your statutes. And so just briefly as an overview, this source of life that Job experiences. First, he is despairing unto life itself. He is indeed on the brink of death, but there is purpose. And the sovereign God is in control. Nevertheless, Job's heart cry on the brink of death cries out, My soul clings to dust. Give me life. And he tells the Lord of his ways. And if you read of these in chapter 21, there's a repeated phrase, If I have done the following, then may I be judged for it. If I have done the following, and so on and so forth. In this testimony, Job imagines himself in a court case, and he's appealing to his track record of keeping the prohibitions of God's law. In other words, God says, shalt, thou shalt not. Job says, I haven't. And he's trusting that that will be sufficient, presumably, to render him innocent before the Lord of glory. Job is missing something, though. The Lord eventually answers Job out of the whirlwind. Chapters 38 and 39. 
And there's a series of introductory phrases that God uses, whereas Job says, if I have the following, then may I be judged. God asks him a series of questions, among them things like this. Have you kept the storehouses of snow? Have you uh, watered and fed all the livestock in the fields? Have you caused Leviathan to be tamed in the midst of the sea? And of course, the answer to every rhetorical question is no. Can't even imagine how something could be done. So what is God doing? He's saying, how do you measure up by this claim to glory? The true claim to glory is the power of one who masters all of creation and is the Lord of both what we see in the, in, you know, the general revelation out there, the world that he created, as well as the Lord of our salvation. After being cross-examined in this way, Job answers, chapter 43 through 5, I am of small account. I lay my hand on my mouth. No more speaking. I'm going to listen. Listen to what? To the word, the statutes, the precepts, the word, the works of God. God just goes over his works. This is the standard of glory. How do you measure up, Job? How do you measure up? Well, Job confesses with Paul one day, I fall short of the glory of God. And he repents in the end, 42, 1 through 6, in dust and ashes. And what happens after that? Job is restored. What we see in Job's experience is the words and statutes of the Lord prove to be his ultimate source of life. Once Job stops appealing to his righteousness or looking to the inside to make his case, and he looks to the statutes and works of God which are revealed to him by covenant revelation, then this ends up being the key to his restoration. And I submit in the big picture we have here the shape of the gospel. The words and statutes of God prove to be a measuring stick whereby none of us can ever lay claim. We all fall short of that claim to glory. These prove, however, his words and statutes to be our ultimate source of life, not our own righteousness. And as we look to Jesus, who is the perfections of God embodied incarnate, who is the Lord himself taking on human flesh, he is, if you will, that ethical standard of all moral virtues. He is holiness, righteousness, justice personified, and so on. As we look to Jesus and we see ourselves as sinners, confess our sin and trust that he bore our sin, then as we look upon the revelation of God in Christ and the revelation of God in his word, it is a key to our own restoration. Restoration of our soul ultimately from hell and condemnation for our sin, but also restoration of our soul from the heavy burden of sorrows that attend our way in the meantime from now until glory. On the brink of death, the author of Psalm 119, his heart cries out and he recognizes not just the causes of sorrow, but also the source of life. Number two, Dalit is the heart cry of a soul, weak and vulnerable. 27 through 29, he confesses the following weaknesses. In our scriptures today, we read in our text, Make me understand the way of your precepts. I will meditate on your wondrous works. He needs growth and understanding. So let's call this theological weakness. Make me understand the way of your precepts. That is, give me better theology. 28, my soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. He also confesses weakness of emotions. My soul melts away. This sorrow is getting the best of me. He has weak theology at times. He is weak in his emotions. And finally, he needs strengthening in his discernment as well. He's weak in this way. Verse 29, put false ways far from me and graciously teach me 
your law. But do you notice that in each case, whether it's these weaknesses that he's dealing with, his understanding of God in the first place, the weakness of his emotions when he's dealing with the weight of trial, or his vulnerability, uh, his, uh, what, what's the word, gullibility is the word I'm looking for, to uh, false teaching, he understands that the prescription, again, is the same in each. Instead of this low understanding, make me understand your precepts. And when I meditate on your wondrous works, may it be sufficient to support me in the soul-melting sorrow. And strengthen me according to your word and your law that I might put away false things far from me. Under weak theology, we understand from the author's confession that fruitful meditation of the works of God is unto the strengthening of the soul is unlocked through a growing understanding of the precepts of the Lord. Let me say it again. Fruitful meditation, that is, thinking deeply about the works of the Lord unto the strengthening of the soul is unlocked by a growing understanding of the precepts of the Lord. You may not think of yourself as a theologian, but you should. Not in the, well, I'm very gifted actually at understanding a lot of things in the scripture and let me impress you with this or that. But you should, rather than that kind of pridefully motivated adding to knowledge for puffing oneself up, you should be motivated to have a deeper understanding of Scripture because meditating on the works of God is a prescription for sorrows of the soul. If you see the works of God in history and you understand why He did them, you can endure trials. An understanding and appreciation for the Word of God will fortify you and strengthen you in your hour of desperate need. Now, let me just give you one example that is ministered to me. It just so happens that the theme of our Advent series, if you will, Heaven's Staircase Touching Earth, was just an overflow of my excitement of the themes that we were studying in Genesis when Jacob sees this incredible vision. The heavens open, stairway touching ground, angels ascending and descending, and behold, Yahweh is above it. Behold this staircase, behold the angels. Whatever could that mean? So you begin to think, well, and with the aid of some uh, study helps, you can, I, I was, it was brought to my attention that it's the opposite of the Tower of Babel. That is to say, in man's strength and his, in, in his ingenuity, he tries to build his own ladder to God. So I think hope for my future and getting through my trials is I'm going to pull myself up from the bootstraps, do the best I can, get a better vision, be more determined, turn over a new leaf, get a New Year's resolution, be more disciplined, work, work, work with my own strength. But without recognizing the sovereignty of God and His grace and mercy, this is nothing but another version of the Tower of Babel. No. What you need, saint, is for God's staircase. What you need, sinner, is for God's staircase to reach down and come to you. And this happened in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And then you read in John 1.51, a lot of this is review, and it's fresh on my mind because it was inspiring to me. You read in John 1:51, Jesus identifying with that dream and saying to his servant Nathaniel, from now on, you'll see the heavens open and the Son of Man and angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And then you realize the fulfillment of Jacob's dream is Jesus Christ. He's heaven's staircase touching ground. He is the bridge between the sinner and the holy. And somehow through him is the connection with God. And then his whole ministry goes to establish that very thing. And then as our eyes are open to it, we have this great encouraging promise 
that is etched deeper in our soul when we realize that the scriptures in detailed, spirit-inspired way lay out for us the glories of our salvation. Now, I'm telling you, the value of that is it will help you get through depression. It will help you deal with despair. When that crushing weight of news that a loved one has tragically died, should God forbid touch your home, and you get that phone call that everybody dreads, what will carry you through? There is only one sufficient answer to that question, and it is the revelation of God himself. It is our Lord and Savior who took upon his shoulders the burden of your sin, who was crucified and on that tree became sin uh, and took on the wrath of the Father and drank that cup to its dregs that allows you to be free from the burden of sorrow and be free from the burden of guilt, be free from the burden of debilitating depression because he has promised you that if he's defeated death, he will defeat every other trial. We know this because death is the greatest enemy and our Lord and Savior rose from the dead. So have you, as you have a deeper both understanding and appreciation of theology, that is the works of God throughout covenant history, it will reinforce you in these times. And though you are weak and vulnerable, may confess as much, nevertheless, there are means to grow, to become strong, and have the Holy Spirit be your therapist, if you will. Weak emotions, my soul melts away for sorrow. And uh, sorrows, unfortified, if we are unfortified by the word of God, sorrows and the weight of them are our undoing. There's a distinction of 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Paul says that we, are, we don't grieve as others do, but in contrast, we grieve as those who have hope. There's a certain despair that the eminence, the reality of death, the brink of death brings, that for those who have no hope of someone greater than death, it absolutely can destroy them, send them into a depression. However, for those who recognize that the weakness of human emotions is strengthened by the promises of God, suddenly we see that even this trial that God has prescribed for us is means for us to grow. And this is a common theme throughout Scripture. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10, Paul laments, that his cause of sorrow was not taken from him. Why have you allowed this thorn in my flesh to persist? Whatever that was, it most certainly caused Paul anguish, anxiety, pain, uh, mental health effects, if you will, and sorrow. But it was prescribed by God. And what did it teach Paul? It taught him that God's grace is sufficient for him. That, and you see it, don't you? I mean, Paul, and the deepest thinkers the church will ever know, most prolific authors of the New Testament, one of the greatest missionaries this uh, church age will ever know, God used those very things that would otherwise crush and drive someone into the dust to sharpen and equip and strengthen his servant to confess his flesh and crucify the sin in his life that might have led him to pride on account of his great learning. I believe Paul was a genius. It's easy for people that have a natural giftedness to rely too much on their abilities and not on God. Not so with Paul, but why was he the exception? In part because God had purpose in prescribing these trials. Nevertheless, God's grace was sufficient for Paul. And when he set his face to the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, and not to his great learning, and not to his great influence, he had sufficient grounds to overcome sorrow and the weight of despair and continue to persevere 
in the state, even in the state of weak emotions. Then finally, discernment. How can we be fortified against these false ways? What we've studied in 2 Peter, described as cleverly devised myths, false teachers, false prophets, false teaching, that which would exploit God's people and so forth. When we are in a weak and vulnerable state, these things can be attractive to us. However, what can fortify us against, you know, I, I submit against these kinds of things I submit in our day, this is necessary. Um, we live in a time where there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of cause for panic, if you will, a lot of fear and paranoia. And in times like this, it renders a people ripe for false teaching. They look for political or intellectual heroes. They're more, they lower their standards of truth. They're more gullible for deception. Cults arise, heresies arise, idolatry becomes more prevalent, and there are frivolous spiritual trends all the time that pop up as fast as you can search for them on the internet. What can fortify us against all these false ways? The answer is the same. It's the Word of God. It's His statutes, precepts. It's His law, His rules, and testimonies. Double down on these saints, and then you will move from being weak and vulnerable in theology and emotions and discernment to being fortified and strengthened and built up and continuing by God's grace, which is sufficient for you, and by these means as the Spirit supplies and applies them, to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, and going on to walk in a manner worthy of your call and persevering unto that mark of the, high, of the prize, the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, as Paul described it. Final point this morning. Dalit is the heart cry of a soul, on the brink of death, weak and vulnerable, but then resolved in the way. Verse 30 through 32, notice a change in tone. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Notice there are four votive action words there, votive verbs. Votive is just the adjective form of vow. I've referenced that before. There's four words that refer to a vow that is a commitment, a resolve that the author is going to make. Number one, chosen. Number two, set. Three, cling. And four, run. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I have made a vow to set my will, to set my purposes, my decisions, my intentions toward the way of faithfulness. The God who has been so faithful to me, I want that, the gospel, to inspire me to be faithful to him. To be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ as I look to him, I have chosen. Decisively submitted to the Lord's will. Committed my will to following him. To seeking faith, to be faithful to the one who laid his life down for me. Vow number one, I have chosen. Vow number two, resolved in the way I have set. He says, I have set your rules before me. Now, if you're walking, kids, maybe some of you are getting to the age where you do some hiking trips, and uh, you can get lost in the woods real quick. Why? Because there's, you lose your points of reference. Maybe it's a cloudy day, not sure where the sun's at. There's no roads, no buildings. You haven't been here before. No trails other than that which the deer make, and they go everywhere they want. So how do you get back home? Well, it's small, it's round, it's got a needle. You hold it in your pocket, you hold it in your hand. What is it, kids? A compass. A compass. Now imagine that compass, and you set it before you, right? And you trust that needle, you know, barring magnetic interference, 
I gotta always qualify these illustrations because some of my kids are real specific and they always find a flaw. So you take that uh, compass and you set it before you and you see that that needle points true north. And when you do so, you have set your course by a standard outside of your experience, your perceptions, your ability, your past, and, and, and everything else. It is a standard independent of you that guides your way. The rules of God serve this purpose. Never, ever despise the law of God. I say this because we need conviction on this matter. Some of us may be nervous to defend the law of God, especially in areas that are particularly politically you know, repulsive, if you will, to the culture in which we live. I've heard one pastor say it this way. There are no problem passages in the Bible. There are just problems with me. There are no problem passages in the Bible. The problem is I don't understand them. Much of the law of God can read this way to us. Why? Because we need to grow in understanding. But as we do, this is what you'll find. You will discover a compass. And what appeared to you as whatever, you know, harsh or judgmental or disparaging or discriminatory in the law of God, once you understand it, in the context of the whole counsel of God's word, you will have in your hand, your spiritual hand, a compass whereby you will see what the standard of ethics and righteousness and truth truly is. And this is the way the word of God works. His statutes, his precepts, and his law, his rules serve to set our course. Later, an analogy is used in Psalm 119, where the author prays, May your word be a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Same picture. I have set your word as a lamp. What does a lamp do in a light in your path? Well, kids, at night, you need a flashlight so you don't run smack into a tree, right? Or fall into a pit. To avoid the obstacles in the way, you need a source outside yourself to illuminate your journey. And the word of God is like this. It illuminates, allows you to see, it gives you perspective. It gives you, it allows you to understand the relationship of one thing to another and to chart a course through a very crowded and crooked and otherwise dangerous world. In the darkness of the shadow of death, the light of God's word is the rod and staff that guides us through. If you want to mix analogies, uh, Psalm 23 and Psalm 119. I have chosen, I have set, I cling. He says this fourth votive action. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord, let me not be put to shame. Now, I trust you notice a contrast, don't you? We've heard of that cling language before. Biblical poetry often does this. It, par it, it parallels and, you know, one idea with another. That is to say, we're in my sorrow and my despair. My soul was clinging to dust. I've now let go of the dust, as it were, and now I cling to your testimonies. You can either cling to dust or you can cling to the Word of God. You can either cling to this world's idolatry, which is dust. You know, it was, it was right that Moses would crush the idols, the golden calves, into dust and make the people drink them. Because oh, that's all the value that they were. They were nothing but poisonous, toxic uh, 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 ideas for the people that would destroy them as that action pictured if they did not let them go. But what were they to cling to in place of the golden calves and the idolatrous notions of their day? The God who revealed himself in statute and power and precept and glory on Sinai and said, these are my rules whereby to set your course. These are my laws whereby all things are to be understood. Cling to them. Cling to his testimonies. All else is but dust. Some of you are young and you may not believe me. Some of you are enamored with the marketplace of ideas out there. Some of you think, sure, my parents have told me this. I'm speaking to the young people today. 
As my parents have told me this, you know, but I have, I don't, I'm not so sure. Be careful. How shall a young man keep his way pure? By paying heed according to the word of God. How can a young man keep his way pure? Guarding it according to your word. Your parents may have fallen short in accurately proclaiming and explaining and modeling that word. But I'll tell you what, there's nothing else to cling to. You cling to Jesus Christ. And as far as your godly parents, if you're privileged to have them have modeled it, you love and appreciate and honor that legacy and make it your call and cause to build on it. Parents, adults in the room, you may be despairing and think to yourself, you know, I've doubled down on my Christianity as far as uh, all these years, and all it's ever gotten me is more, you know, sideways glances from my neighbor. This culture is increasingly inhospitable. I prayed for X and it never happened. I'm tired of standing in faith for this thing or the other, and we can grow weary in our soul. Yeah, I challenge you, if you move to something else to cling to, other than the word of Jesus Christ and all that it deems righteous, you will find yourself crushed under the sorrows and weight of this life. Do you not think that the word of God, correctly understood and correctly loved in your heart, is not sufficient to bear you through this short journey that the Bible calls but a vapor? It is. And you can look to the testimony of those in Scripture who have gone before that endured much more than we have. You know, I was reading the Babylon Bee. I don't know if any of you guys are a fan of that satire site. But <clears throat> turns out, according to the Babylon Bee, that a final chapter of Job was discovered by archaeologists where Job had to put together Ikea furniture. And, of course, that is humorous, but it illustrates something. What we call trials in this life and what we complain about and despair over in their pampered West is akin to being frustrated and throwing the hammer across the room because we're having a hard time putting together Ikea furniture when you look at the weight of trials and sorrows that our forebears in the faith had to bear. Let's be honest, there are those who have held up under far more pressure than we often feel. Even as I say that though, there are some in the hearing of this message today who have had to bear incredible weights. And I do not minimize that either. Suffice it to say, we have testimony from the Word of God and the people of God that the Scriptures prescribed for the sorrows of the soul can hold up to any test and trial. And I'm just warning you, if you struggle with believing that and cling to anything else, it will prove dust in your hand. And in the end, it will destroy you. God forbid. Cling to Him. And as the trials grow harder, cling all the tighter and pray two prayers greater understanding and greater love. Pray this, that the Lord would enlarge my heart. That was the prayer of Psalm 119. Under this final votive action, he says, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. In closing of this message, in beginning this new year, what a great vision. Oh Lord, enlarge my heart. And I submit in two ways in the context of this psalm. Enlarge my understanding and enlarge my love. They both go hand in hand. Enlarge my ability to process these glorious truths and enlarge my affections, my desires to appreciate them, to hold them tight, to consider them more valuable than any other treasure. Grass withers, the flowers fail. Thieves break in and steal. Moths will eat and destroy. And fire and rust corrupts the treasures of this world. But not so the kingdom of God. O Lord, enlarge our heart to love your righteousness and love your kingdom.
Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Your translation may read something else, and both apply. That is to say, the domain of the words, the possible interpretations, is not just enlarge my heart, but also broaden my understanding. And it's very cool in a way how the original language bears the weight of two things. As I said before, the understanding of the mind and then the love and affections of the heart. O Lord, enlarge my heart, broaden my understanding. Necessary affections and insight, desires and knowledge, love and the truth. This is a proactive parallel to the withering effects of heaviness of the soul clinging to dust as described earlier in the text. Our author acknowledges the necessity of spirit-wrought rehabilitation. Spirit-wrought therapy, if you will. Spirit-wrought prescription for the sorrows of this life. This is the prescription when the debilitating weight and despair of life is restricting our capacity to persevere. And when we feel that way, and when those days come, may this be our prayer. O Lord, enlarge our hearts. In this new year, O Lord, broaden our understanding. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the reassurance of your scriptures and that which it points us to, Lord, the standard whereby we can chart a course unto glory. As Peter says, until the morning star, Jesus Christ, arises in our hearts. Lord, may we pay attention. May we set our course according to your scriptures. May we grow in love and understanding of your statutes, your testimony, your word, your precepts, your rules, your commandments. Lord, I pray for every soul in the hearing of this message that they would respond to this with this prayer. O Lord, enlarge my heart and broaden my understanding. Lord, if the lost hear this message, I pray that as they pray this prayer, it would be one of confession of sin and surrendering to Jesus Christ, acknowledging that they have fallen short of His standard of glory and only He can grant unto them salvation. For believers in the sound of this proclamation, I pray that they would turn to You Lord Jesus, and turn away from any other promise in seeking to be transformed in the image of Jesus Christ and clinging to you and recognizing that your word is sufficient for the trials of sorrow, even as it's sufficient for the trial of youth, the trial of sojourning, and any other difficulty we might face. That was an interesting time for my mic to go out. So I guess I'm supposed to stop because I ran out of batteries. Um, thank you for your...